Well, I feel that it's necessary, Kate. I'm listening. I feel that it's necessary to go back into the uh, archives for this edition. Yeah, we're done. We're rejecting the present moment. Yeah, yeah, we're going to... We'll, we'll, the next um, podcast, we'll get back to the PLJ stuff. Because um, what I want to do is play the Leonard Cohen um, interview that I have from 1993 when Leonard was on my show on um, K-Rock, WXRK, uh, in June of that year, June 13th, 1993. So, wait, did we say welcome to the Kate and Vince Gelsa podcast? No, we didn't say any of that. Oh. I just thought I would just jump right, in. right into it because I'm, I'm excited about well, we'll this. say welcome to the Kate and Vin Skelsa podcast. Okay. Uh, uh, as we are taping this, we are, when did Leonard Cohen leave us? Last week? Mm, the week before? Two, two, two weeks. Two weeks ago? Yeah. It's all been a blur. Yeah, it has <laughs> been. It was right, it was just before the election just, or almost on the election. before. It's, it seemed like... It was a one-two punch. <laughs> it was <laughs> it was disaster after disaster. Yeah, really. um, so this will be some soothing self-care uh, to go back and uh, pay tribute to Leonard Cohen. It was uh, several months after the album The Future came out. And it was also several months after... The first major terrorist attack on the World Trade Center took place. What do you have the date there? February of ninety three. February of ninety three. If you'll recall, the old World Trade Center was there was a bombing in the parking garage underneath the the Trade Center, and people were killed, hurt. There, I mean, I don't remember how you know what the the extent of the damage was but it was definitely a terrorist attack and uh six people were killed six people were killed uh this was still very fresh in our minds and leonard's album the future sort of um deals a lot with that kind of thing even the album that came out a couple of years earlier i'm your man you know um first we take manhattan deals with the kind of um terrorist mentality and you'll hear him use that phrase now for some reason uh on this recording you don't hear me like formally introduce him we just sort of like get right into the conversation and i guess that's the way it really happened is I, i'm playing the first thing on the tape is me playing first we take manhattan and then i say uh i've always wanted to ask you leonard cohen about this song and and, and then he starts to talk about the terrorist mentality and then we get into some other things and he's He's on with me for a good hour and a half or so, but that includes all the music that we played. So what I'll do, um, the way I've handled this in the past when I've played some old interview, is I'll just leave 
20 seconds of the music there so you'll get some idea of what music we played because we don't have the uh, legal ability to play entire recordings on this on this podcast and um i just i, I you know it's i i was always real nervous about having leonard on the air and people from the record company from columbia records would always say to me, why don't you have Leonard Cohen on the air? And fr- mutual friends. Yeah. There were guys like uh, Larry Sloman, a uh, writer who um, wrote a, a wonderful book about the Bob Dylan Rolling Thunder Review tour. Uh, Larry Sloman was a, a friend of mine, and uh, he used to say all the time, hey, you and Leonard would get along great. You know, why don't you have Leonard on? And I never wanted to talk to Leonard Cohen because I thought... I I held him in such high regard, and I thought he was such an advanced mind uh-huh. that there would be no way that I that I could keep up with him. Even though now I've been in the business for you know almost thirty years. At that point. At that point mm-hmm. in in ninety three, you know, um, and I've accomplished a lot, and I've talked to a lot of people, and I no longer have that that neophyte fear of somehow not measuring up, I still don't think I'm going to measure up to Leonard Cohen. And I put it off and I put it off and I put it off for a decade. You know, I had probably been asked by people from the record company to have him on. And I say, all due respect, it's not because I don't love him. You know, I love him and I play his records, but I don't want to... You were just too intimidated. I was too intimidated. Because you thought you would sound silly or that he would you would you just thought you wouldn't be able to engage on the yeah. same level and as I, him and I was afraid that somehow he would turn out to be not who I thought he was right and he turned out to be everything that I thought he, <laughs> that I thought he was and you'll hear this now from uh and he was what when you do you met him just this day before this interview yeah, I met him. That when, was the first time you met him. Yeah, the first time we had ever met, he came up to do the interview. It was a Sunday night at uh, uh, K-Rock, WXRK. Um, and he... And you were know, you and you were nervous? I was nervous, but I knew I could probably handle it. Yeah. And people, so many people had assured me that we would get along. Right. That That I was being ridiculous to have that fear that I felt you know, okay with it. And so uh, here's Leonard Cohen's appearance on Idiot's Delight. Again, because there's no formal introduction, it sounds like maybe something is missing, but I don't believe anything is missing from, from what I recorded, which seems to be what actually happened. Does that make sense? <laughs> yes, it does. Yeah, because I know that that guy, Neil... Yeah. Neil Litt, who who is like one of the keepers of the flame of Idiot's Delight. Yeah. He posted of what he has of this and it um people thought that it was incomplete. Uh-huh. And I think maybe that's why they thought it was incomplete because there's no formal introduction. Right. I sort of I guess maybe I was nervous enough that I didn't think to introduce him. I just got right into the conversation that we were already having. Right. Something like that. I don't know, Kate. (laughs) But uh, I think it's necessary as we approach the end of the year here um, to acknowledge the 
passing. It, I mean, he lived a long life, a full life. He was still producing recordings, you know, just before he, he died. You Want It Darker was the name of the album that, that he released just a week or so before he died. Um, sort of like the Bowie. Uh, very analogous to the Bowie situation. Yeah. And, and he and Bowie are both at the after party now having, uh, having a, a fine glass of wine and trading stories, I'm sure. Yep. Buzz. We take Manhattan Then we take Berlin Leonard Cohen is my guest here on Idiot's Delight tonight. WXRK New York 92.3 K-Rock. Um, and I've always wanted to ask you, Leonard Cohen, about that song, First We Take Manhattan, about the uh, the sort of uh, guerrilla military kind yeah. of uh, attack thing that's going on there. What is, what is that all about? Well, it became clear a while ago that uh, all the energy had moved out of the center, that the center could no longer hold, that the... Uh, the the rational positions uh, were losing a sense of justification, and that all the um, energy, all the fun, was going to the edges. So you are in a period now where the extremist position, the oversimplified position, is the one that captures hearts today. And uh, this was a kind of geopolitical uh, uh, investigation into that frame of mind. Mm. which I felt was about to manifest and which has manifested so uh, uh, stridently over the past few years. It is the, as you, I think you're quite right, it is the guerrilla sensibility. That is that there's no justice so that things have to be overturned in, in our own terms. We have to like crack the mold and fashion one closer to our hearts. That's a very dangerous situation. I, I meant to indicate that kind of mad, logical, extremist, terrorist, guerrilla position that has uh, seized the uh, hearts and minds of uh, uh, most of the activists in the world today. Mm. And there's, a, there's an element of revenge in there as well. You know, that Everybody you feels that they've been wrong. Everybody yeah. has become an injustice collector. Everybody wants their uh, situation to be corrected as uh, deliciously and as viciously as possible. What do we do with that? If everybody wants that and everybody's got their own the advice selfish I give, thing. Yeah, the advice I give now, especially when younger people ask me about my, my you know, what to do, I say duck. <laughs> the excrement is about to hit oh, the ventilator. Yeah. Really, really. Well, that's what the future is all about, really, isn't it? This the new I album so. of yours. Yeah. yeah, it's what it's about, you know. There, there's it, it's it's also the terrorist position uh has is so seductive that everybody has embraced it. You know, the governments have embraced it. Uh, uh, the um, lovers have embraced it. This, the same politics of the bedroom and the living room and of the legislative assemblies of the world, it is a terrorist position. You know, reduce everything to confrontation, to revenge. Mm -hmm. And... 
This, the, do you think the media plays a big part in, in all that? It's way beyond that. Yeah, okay. It's all lost. <laughs> oh, man. It, it is all lost. It's, you know, uh, my friend Leighton described it as nail polish, you know, culture, our culture, our civilization, all this beautiful stuff from, you know, Mozart to Bukowski. You know, it's just and as, as, as exalted uh, or as uh, funky as it gets, you know, it's just nail polish on the claws. And the nail polish has begun to crack and flake and the claws are showing through. And that's what we're living with. We're living with in a world in which the claws have been exposed. And it's only been a tiny brief moment when they were covered with nail polish. And now the nail polish is coming off. the title track of the most recent Leonard Cohen album, the album called The Future. Leonard Cohen is my guest here this evening on Idiot's Delight. The future looks pretty uh, grim. Well, it, it, it is grim. It always has been grim, but, you know, if I'd have just nailed this up as a manifesto on the church door, it would be quite a grim document, but, you know, it's married to a a happy little dance track. Yeah, so <laughs> right. the, uh, and there and there know. is a, a, a an element of humor that, yes. that runs through yes. it as well. It's kind, of, it's quite funny. Uh, uh, I am the little Jew who wrote the Bible. All the poets trying to sound like Charlie Manson. You know, there's yeah. a couple of yeah. laughs at it, but you know, the, the lyric in any case melts into the into the music, and the music melts into the lyric, and you just get a kind of refreshment, a kind of breath of fresh air, just to hear these. Um, to hear these these matters examined in this kind of way, I think, produces oxygen. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, you write a, a lot of lyrics for your songs um, and, and will frequently change the song in performance. Yeah, that's right. Why is that? Why is that? I mean, well, I don't know. You know, it's it just takes me a long time to to figure out what a song is about. And I, I uh, all the easy versions come first the alibis, the slogans, the correct positions, even if they're naughty, even if they're uh, adventurous, you know. The, the the quick take, the quick fix, you know, comes first. And, and, you know, we live our life on that basis, you know, and we're not expected to dredge up the most uh, profound things in conversation, you know. There is a kind of lightness to our ordinary life, but I find that I don't want that feel in the songs. I want to know what's really, you know, underneath the my opinions. I find my opinions incredibly boring, you know. I mean, my mind, my heart, my life is so far behind my opinions, you know, ahead of my opinions, I mean, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. The opinions, you know, you kind of refine them, you trot them out, you know, at the appropriate moments, and you can even get behind them sometime and argue them, but basically they are incredibly dull 
and boring, mine and almost everybody else's I come across. So there's something else that is sitting under the opinions, and that's what I like to get to in the song. And that's a, a line, what, what is the position of the guy in the future? Is he left? Is he right? You know, is he a lunatic? Is he sane? Has he turned his back on it? Has he embraced it? You know, it is the real inner life that I'm trying to manifest in the songs. Mm-hmm. So you'll, you'll literally live with these songs for a long period of time. Yeah. And keep peeling them away. You see, but before I can throw a verse away, I have to write it with exactly the same kind of diligence and care and effort that it would take to write the one that I'm going to keep. Because it's in the writing of it. It's in the putting your ass on the line, in the writing of it, in the commitment to the rhyme, in the commitment to the rhythm. You know, it's exactly that process that produces the material that is not boring, that is not the slogan, that is not the alibi. So, you know, before you can discard the verse, you have to write it with the same kind of effort than the one you would keep. Yeah. I, uh, when John Cale visited us um, nine, ten, eleven months ago, whenever it was, when he he put out uh, an album, a live performance album that has Hallelujah on it, your uh, song, yeah, it's right? A wonderful performance. And Cale um, talked about how he had to uh, gather together several people here in New York to track down all of the lyrics to the song, including Ratso, Larry Sloman, <laughs> because because there were so many lyrics. And while you had recorded a version, there are verses and verses and verses extant that were not on your recorded version right. of the song. You must, I, th- I think you must be unique in, in, in that regard. I don't know. I, it, it just seems to me that, uh, you know, while there, you know, as Browning said, the first fine, careless frenzy, I mean, there is something wonderful about just laying it out and it being beautiful and limpid and lying there or hanging there or twisting there. You know, that first thought, best thought, uh, um, promotional activity of the uh, writing Jewish Buddhists, you know, this idea, you know, that it's all just there, just say it, uh, you know. You know, that's never worked for me. Mm-hmm. I find first, my first thoughts are dull, are prejudiced, uh-huh. are poisonous. You know, uh, I find that I have that last thought, best thought. Is it is it because those first thoughts are so spontaneous and visceral, and the last thought is the is the deep? I suppose they are spontaneous and visceral. If you are a spontaneous and visceral kind of chap, you know, I'm not. Uh-huh. You know, I, I am not a spontaneous and visceral kind of chap. You know, I'm very formal, uptight, and agonized most of the time. So, you know, it takes me a long time to get to the spontaneous, visceral quality that is uh, every human's heritage. Mm-hmm. But I have to do a lot of undressing, a lot of stripping, a lot of sweating, you know. I have to go into the sauna, you know, to, to really sweat it out. And then it gets spontaneous and visceral, you know, like six months down the road. At the beginning, it's just formal. I can fake visceral and spontaneous. In fact, most of the things that go down for visceral and spontaneous are fake. You know, you can hear it when you hear it, mm-hmm. but, you know, very few things uh, very few things that you love are, are spontaneous and visceral. I think first thought, best thought, spontaneous and visceral are highly overrated qualities, you know. I think that uh, 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 right now, you know, what the age seems to demand is uh, a much more uh, modest approach to our psyches, you know. Let us not assume that everything we come up with, you know, just because it's fast, 
is good. So you, you wouldn't have necessarily um, gotten along with uh, Jack Kerouac on, on a literary level. I did get along with him. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, uh, but did you appreciate his work? I appreciate his work very much. And he, he is a, was a certain uh, kind of genius who was able to spin it out that way. You know, like some great glistening spider. You know, just that everything that he produced had this this silver shining uh, quality that was, you know, connected one thing to the other. I mean, the sense of connection in, in Kerouac. I mean, the way that he can, you know, unify uh, his own vision, you know, moment after moment. So things don't just hang. And you, know, you never say, oh, he shouldn't have put this in. I mean, his embrace is so wide. You know that he does not need these Roman nails. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. he, he's yeah. the the embrace is very very. You know, I, I'm not so generous, an individual. I don't have that kind of gift. That kind of gift, you know, destroys a generation of writers that come after him, just like Dylan's did. Yes. Yeah. You know, that kind of gift is wonderful in the genius that that comes up with it. You know, then you have everybody like uh, not writing but typing, as one of our other writers observed. Truman Capote said yeah. that. Right? Yeah. <laughs> that isn't yeah. writing; that's typing. You know, yeah. well, it wasn't typing with Kerouac. Mm-hmm. It was really spinning the great tale of America. When and where did your paths cross? It was. Uh, I think the first time I saw Jack Kerouac was at, uh, at the Vanguard. So I'm reading. So I'm reading. Yeah, yeah. with it, with like a jazz group or that's a right. pianist behind yeah. him. Yeah. 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 I think I saw him, uh, that was the first time, and then I, I, I bumped, to him at a, bumped into him at a party that the, I think Ginsburg kindly invited me to, and I saw him a couple of times thereafter. Mm. Now, when you were coming of age in Montreal, there was a, a community of artists, writers, musicians who were in a way similar to uh, what was happening in New York and in San Francisco in, in the Beat era, or... Or were they different? I wouldn't say so. It, it, there were a group of poets, uh, some of whom have distinguished themselves uh, in Canada. Um, there were really just a half a dozen or a dozen of us who uh, had a very high investment in this activity. And um, there were no prizes. There were no grants. There were no awards. There weren't even any girls. There, were, there was just the, the work. And uh, we Xerox, not even Xerox, we mimeographed mm. uh, those first books and put them out. But the, the thing that distinguished that activity was uh, a, a savage integrity. And uh, we would gather several times a week uh, uh, in cafes or in our um, rented rooms, and uh, we would read each other our verses. And you had to defend your verse. You had to defend your poem because every word was scrutinized and attacked. By the others, I would imagine the group was was so small because you you uh, immediately got rid of the the pretenders. The, I mean, because that sounds really frightening. To it was to defend. It was yourself. frightening. You had to defend your poem. Mm. You had to defend your writing. Uh, uh, some of it. Sometimes it was. Uh, I, I mean, I saw grown men cry uh, yeah. under those circumstances, but um, often it was filled. I mean, generally it was filled with good humor and drink and. Uh, and a sense of fraternity that uh, seems to have, you know, passed from uh, any uh, any of the other literary communities I've ever uh, bumped into mm. before or since. Who who were your your prime influences as a as a writer first starting out writing poetry? 
it's hard to say. Uh, uh, I was very much encouraged by a friend of mine by the name of Irving Layton, not influenced by his work, but by the man himself, by his manner, by his generosity. And uh, uh, we became friends, and we remain friends. He is, uh, I think, without any argument, the the greatest Canadian poet that the English English Canada has ever produced, and maybe one of the best poets, for my money, the best poet writing in English today. Hmm. Name is Irving Layton. Hmm. Lives in Montreal. I don't. I don't Not know. Not no here. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that a shame? If, yes. he, if you describe him I, I think, that I, way, I, I think that those who know his work. You know, you might quarrel, like, you know, is he the Mississippi or the Himalayas? Uh-huh. Or, you know, these are just matters of personal taste, but it's, it's indisputable that there is a sense of greatness about his work. And actually, I was, I was just talking to, as I have many times talked to American publishers, the man is 80 now. He's published over 60 volumes of uh, work. Uh, he, he deserves to be uh, read throughout the world. He's finding an audience in Italy now for some odd reason the Italians have begun to translate him hmm. now when 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 you started um, performing you were performing as a poet you know you you were uh, you were on a on a circuit where you became a kind of a, a pop rock star before you began playing music well in a very very minor uh, capacity because you know when we're, we're talking about a country where an addition of poetry that did gloriously well meant that you sold two or three hundred copies. Gloriously so, well. Gloriously well. So, like the Spice Box of Earth, a, a book like that would sell only a few hundred copies. Well, uh, my first book sold uh, four hundred copies. It was called Let Us Compare Mythologies. Uh-huh. Um, Spice Box, and that was considered, you know, a stunning success, and it was reviewed in all these mimeographed journals. You know that no one read. You know, there's a readership of of a few hundred people yeah, right, right. in the country. Well, v- very much due to the work of Irving Layton and Frank Scott, Phyllis Webb, uh, Raymond uh, Souther, uh, there, there were certain people that you know started promoting the idea of poetry. And then our nationalist uh, uh, energies were tapped and we started to feel like we had to, we had to produce a culture and protect it. And so laws started to be passed and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But in those days, you know, I mean, when, when you're talking about stardom, you're talking about a very, very tiny uh, you know, sky, a very tiny landscape. But you were performing at that time. Well, we didn't think of it as performing, although I think you're, you're quite right. We were showing off, yeah. and we were trying to be loved in whatever uh, terms you know were available. But those were tiny poetry readings of... 20, 25 uh-huh. people at the most. But have, have you always felt that um, the, the, the oral, the spoken tradition in poetry is important to your work? Is it important to have it read out loud? You know, you were trying to get ahead in some way, and, uh, you know, you were ready to accept any invitation, you know, to publish a poem in a, a mimeograph magazine or to, you know, read in a tiny bookstore, uh, you know, on a Thursday night. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, you, our commitment to the enterprise was absolute. I mean, we didn't want to be or do anything else. You know, none of us wanted to teach in university or, you know, um, I, I don't know what the other alternatives were. You know, but the commitment was 
really v- very impressive now that I look back on it, uh, uh, my own and my friends, you know, the, what we brought to it then, because there were no rewards, there, there was nothing else going on. It was just this thing. It was pure in a way, wasn't it? It had a certain purity that uh, I think uh, uh, produced uh, some very, very good work. Leonard Cohen is my guest uh, here on Idiot's Delight. We're going to pause for a minute, sure take care of some commercial business, and then let's let's move from uh, Leonard Cohen as poet to Leonard Cohen as songwriter okay. and see how you made that transition. Sure the Brother P-Touch Electronic Lady. No With Leonard Cohen. Get reserved seats at the Garden Box Office and all Ticketmaster outlets, including Crossroads tickets on Route 4 East and Paramus. Or call Ticketmaster uh, Phone Charge. Monday night at 7.30 in the Paramount. An evening with Leonard Cohen. From Bud Light, everything else is just a light. Produced by Metropolitan Entertainment in association with Madison Square Garden. Which explains what Leonard is doing here in New York on this particular Sunday night. He will be at the Paramount tomorrow night, Monday night. Yes. And uh, on his night off, he has graciously consented to uh, sit and chat with us here on Idiot's Delight. I appreciate you inviting me. Well, as, I, uh, as I've said many times on the air, I have avoided on a couple of occasions accepting an invitation to have you come up. You know, record company people have said, we, we know how much you love Leonard Cohen. Have him. And I said, nah, I don't know. No, I'm a little nervous. I think I'm intimidated by him. Plus, I respect the man so much, and you're such an important part of my life, that I didn't want to um, see the man behind my image, my myth that I had created for you. I, I, I think that that's, uh, there's a certain wisdom in that position, because I think that people do get in the way of their work. The, their own personalities, you know, the, whatever, their own moods, their own daily moment that you might find them in. Uh-huh. Uh, I think there are uh, exceptions, of course, but I don't know why one would really want to meet someone whose work is... W- would you really like to meet Isaiah, you know, or King David? <laughs> not necessary. Yeah, you know, right. Not necessary. Because right, right. I'm, I'm one of those people who uh, um, spent countless hours in my attic um, bedroom in my parents' home, devouring uh, Beautiful Losers, the novel, devouring your poems, listening to that first album when it was on vinyl and, mm-hmm. and ruining it, you know, because I played it so many times that I had to go out and, uh, and, and buy another copy of it. Um, so for me, you've always been a, a real important figure. And something has changed in me, I guess, over the last couple of years, because this time around, I went to them and said, please, if Leonard is in town on a Sunday night, could he come by? So... Something happens in our own ability to deal with yeah, I think our when you, heroes. When you make you know? your treasures your own uh, uh, and you really claim them, that um, you know uh, you can you can use that strength just to sell it into the world. I think that's what we're all doing mm-hmm. yeah. with our work. You know, yeah. is pitching in at this point. You know, th- these are very grave times, and uh, they're, they're not times to stand on ceremony, you know, and I think we've all got to pitch in. I, I know that sounds like a fatuous observation, but I mean from moment to moment. I mean whoever you're talking to. You know, this is not a moment for kinds of false modesty or pretensions or attitude, attitudes. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, I remember when I was in, uh, came down to New York by myself, uh, I don't know, in the 50s, you know, and I'd heard that there was a kind of liberal, I'm not speaking of politically, a kind of generous you know, community of artists and writers and, and people and folks, you know, and that they lived in Greenwich Village. I just heard that. 
you know, and I came down, and I, I, I you know, I felt such a cold shoulder mm-hmm. from everybody and from everywhere. Well, this is a naive, uh, of course, a naive reaction, of course. But I remember sitting in some cafe uh, in the village at that time, you know, and and writing on my uh, placemat, you know, kill cool, <laughs> and holding it up. You know, for the patrons to see, uh-huh, uh-huh. and that's what I feel. You know, right now, like kill attitude. What a drag. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about time that we started pitching in. I mean, moment to moment in the conversation with whoever you happen to be with, I like, help out because the the times are, are are these are times that try the souls of men. And there's no room for that, for that attitude. I think that that attitude is a, is a, is a very poor, uh, very poor advice, you know, in terms of, uh, of an emergency. I don't think that mm-hmm. attitude has any place at all. Mm-hmm. And everybody, you know, we've all been trying to, you know, everybody thinks that, like, that's where the edge is, that's where the sex is, that's where the fun is, that's where the thrust is, that's where, you know, that's where it's happening. But it ain't. You know, it's just getting worse and worse. So it's happening. Where it's happening is within, within you, and then how well, you just, deal you know, from wh- moment to moment. Whoever you're with, whether you're buying yeah. cigarettes or, mm-hmm. you know, having an interview, I mean, there's no need for you to pull this shit, uh-huh. you know, yeah. of attitude. Yeah. You know, what uh, uh, what could possibly, what could it possibly serve, you know? Well, we've got our professional attitudinists, you know, that's not, we should cherish them. You know, but it it doesn't have to. You know, there is such a thing as courtesy. Who's a professional attitudinist? Dylan. Oh, I think he's long ago abdicated. <laughs> that uh, you know, I think he was a, a grand, a shining, and probably immortal uh-huh. example of that position. And you know, like any great one, you know, the imitators that come after, uh, you know, are very tedious. Mm-hmm. You know, because they're, <laughs> you know. They, they, they know. They already. It's the the man who develops that, you know, is is of course, you know, cherished. And uh, but I mean, Dylan long ago has abdicated that. Dylan is, uh, you know, a, a, a working musician, you know, who goes from town to town singing his songs constantly. And uh, you know, for whatever reasons, and they're his own. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but he has completely uh, left uh, the scene of. Uh, of fashion and influence, and uh, you know, my hat's off to him. You know, he's just a working stiff. Uh-huh. Well, he may be working. You know, the, the pay's good, but it's still, tr- you know, it's still rough to go from town to town singing your songs. You know, on whatever level you do it. Right. right. Well, you've been out now for uh, what a couple of months on this. A few months tour? on the road, yeah. yeah. And and more to come as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you like performing? I like it when it goes well, you know. I like it when I don't humiliate myself. I like it when I'm not ashamed of myself at the end of the evening. Mm-hmm. But you set yourself up for those disgraces, and uh, you know when you can avoid them, you think that uh, you know you still know how to uh, do the step, or mm-hmm. uh, you know you can still pull it off. But when you go out on stage, do you feel um, do you feel comfortable, or do you feel alien somehow out there? I feel that if I'm in the right kind of shape, I can deliver, you know. If, if, if I haven't sold myself something, some 
bill of goods about who I am. You know, if you can, you know, overlook your own, the version of yourself that you've bought, you know, and that people have helped you buy, you, you know, especially when you've had a little success. You know, it, it, in a sense, it was easier in those years when, you know, I was more, of a, more or less a kind of joke. You know, uh, uh, um, and uh, you know the the records weren't selling, and uh, the whole deal was not considered terribly important. Then, when I could get out on the stage, you know, and I could sing a song like "The Singer Must Die for a Lot for the Lion His Voice," you know, I thank you, I thank you for doing your duty, you keepers of truth, you guardians of beauty. Your vision was right, my vision was wrong. I'm sorry for smudging the air with my song. That's hard to sing when you're more popular. Than <laughs> yeah, right, you know, right. People have been very kind to me over the past couple of years, you know, and I've, I've, I've enjoyed a resurrection. And, uh, you know, and I'm very pleased uh, about it. But uh, it, it, it invites you to buy versions of yourself that stand in the way. Uh-huh. Of, of delivering the song in, in, in the best way possible. Can and we, I fall for it sometimes. I, I, that, that's, that's human, I think, to fall yeah. for that, right? I mean, it's very easy to get caught up in that. And I suppose, I suppose with, with, with age and hopefully with the wisdom that you get from just living longer, um, you'll learn how to deal with that. Or, or not. Are you saying that maybe you don't learn how well, to deal I, with it? You know, I, I don't think it's written anywhere you get, you know, you get wiser as you get older. I mean, you you, you, I, I find that you get a, you know, a certain kind of vulnerability, a certain kind of fragility, also, or maybe just the range, you know, gets wider. I mean, you get more strong and more weak. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you get, you, you get, you get more generous and somehow more miserly at the same time. You know, so yeah, I mean, as Leighton says, you know, the, the poets that ev the the tricks that every poet learns eventually, you know, you do you do find a way through it, but I, I'm not so sure that it gets easier or better. I, I, I said before that I wanted to take you back to that moment where you decided to sing your songs um, rather than write them as poems. What was the, the impulse to pick up a guitar and start to create songs? Well, it started with the guitar, and uh, uh, I'd always played guitar, and uh, when I was about 17 or 18, a couple of us formed a group called the Buckskin Boys in Montreal. So it preceded my writing, my formal writing. I didn't know about formal writing. Uh, I wasn't terribly interested in it. I was interested in country music mm -hmm. and what they called folk music in those days. And uh, we sang all those songs, and we sang at barn dances, at square dances, and we sang in school auditoria and in church basements. And uh, that was my first paying job, and that was you know, really the first time I ever stood up in front of people was to uh, you know play rhythm guitar in a uh, in the buckskin voice. You know when I, uh, I I then got really interested in the lyric. You know I thought these these are beautiful. You know as I started researching uh, songs, I went down to the Harvard Library of Folk Music. You know spent a summer there just listening to all the songs. You know all these incredible lyrics. And I got really deeply. Interested. I mean, like the the mountain ballads yeah, and, yeah, and those things, yeah, the, all that John Jacob and, Nile, all oh, that yeah, stuff that yeah, he compiled, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you'd sit there in that in that library, you know, at Harvard, 
and you know they you know you could you could listen to everything that was recorded and you know then i you know the whole lomax and uh people's songbook and uh, the almanac singers uh, you know that whole tradition also touched me very deeply their concern mm-hmm. you know their passionate concern uh, these kinds of attitudes now that are you know so belittled and so scorned you know where people actually you know would dare to sing songs about brotherhood uh, uh, those uh, songs touch me very deeply in their lyrics. And uh, so, you know, uh, I began, you know, also uh, as a way to approach uh, young women. You know, I, I was shy. I didn't exactly know how to do it. So there was something about, you know, the words on the page, you know, that I could arrange in some way to get some kind of attention. So all those streams combined to give me a, a passion interest in you know, blackening the page in a certain kind of way where the lines don't come to the end mm-hmm. of the page. Can you tell how um, how you got to know Judy Collins and she came to record Suzanne? I know it wasn't the first recorded version of the song, but it was the one that really yes. introduced oh, well, you. Judy Collins was extremely generous to me and extremely kind. Um, you know, she she was there long before I was there. And we had a mutual friend, and uh, I came to New York. I borrowed some money to come to New York. Uh, I, 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 I had some songs. 1964, Must have been five? about 65, yeah. something like that, 65. And um, we had a mutual friend, and I went over to her house, and you know who was there? One of the writers of Ballad for Americans. I think Earl Robinson. Ah. He was at the house. Part of that tradition that you were just yes, talking about. And I yeah. knew though, you know, I knew his his work. Right, right. And uh, so I sang her a couple of songs, and she was she received them very kindly. I mean, very compassionately, because you know, you I can't even think, think of these things happening today. It's become so tough, you know, and so. Um, I mean, you really don't want to help anybody out anymore. You know, these impulses seem to have been blunted. But uh, too much a, competition. Yeah, not in her case. Mm. You know, and she said, "I really like these songs, but there isn't anything." You know, please keep in touch. You know, and but in in the kindest way possible. And then I went back to Montreal, and I knew that I was on top of a good song. Uh, I, I had the finger picking worked out. You know, and I knew that it was connected to the harbor in Montreal, and I, I uh, and then I started writing verse after verse, and finally, when I I came upon a version of it uh, that I liked, I called Judy on the telephone, and uh, I sang it to her over the phone, and she said, "I want to record that immediately." That was the song, Suzanne. Suzanne takes you down to a place by the river. You can hear the boats go by. You can spend the night forever. And you know that she's half crazy. That's why you want to be there. And you Trust her 
Leonard Cohen, it has been said by many, sometimes in a joking fashion, sometimes quite seriously, that Leonard Cohen's albums and songs are the soundtracks for, uh, you know, depressed, suicidal people. Mm-hmm. Um, the songs can be very bleak. The songs can be yeah, very sad. They have. But is that is that is that you? I mean, are you a, de- a depressed, suicidal person? Have you been Not at times suicidal. in your life? I, I've never been suicidal. I don't know. It doesn't come to me that that uh, version of the bleakness. Mm-hmm. You know? But uh, yes, I have known real depression, and um, a lot of the songs come out of that experience. And uh, I think people are beginning to understand now. This is not the blues. You know, this is a different kind of experience. I think William Styron, is that how you pronounce his uh-huh, name? Yeah. He, he wrote about it. Um, oh, in that recently. recent... Yeah, yes. right. That, that kind of experience I, I'm not unfamiliar with. So uh, it is a landscape that I know about, and a lot of the songs have come from that place. Now, the curious... And I can see why people who don't know about that are, are, are going to, you know, and, and music is a matter of taste, and a lot of people just don't want to hear that kind of sound in a man's voice or in a man's music. There's, there's nothing to say about it. It's quite fine, you know. The curious thing is that people who know that landscape uh, have written me in, I don't get a great deal of mail, but I, I do get some mail. People who are familiar with that landscape write me uh, and say that it gets them out of it. Yes. That it gets them through it. So well, in much the same way that the blues, not not mm-hmm. yeah. the blah blues, but the yeah. blues music yeah. gets people out yeah. of uh, yeah. out of the blues. The yeah. blues is a mm-hmm. is an exuberant, um, mm-hmm. you know, music, and there there is a great deal of uh, of of hope and love in your songs. You know, I've always had to sort of argue with people when they say, "Oh, Leonard Cohen's music is slit your wrist by." No, yeah. it's not. <laughs> well, it it, it 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 is if you're not familiar with that landscape, you know? I mean, why should people be invited into a place that is uncomfortable and the value of the piece is that it's going to get you out of it? But if you are familiar with it, uh-huh. it does help to get you out of it. How, what, what, have, what, has, what has allowed you to get out of those moods? The work itself is, uh, is an element, you know? Uh, studying the mood very, very carefully in a very concentrated way. Uh, is has been helpful, and I've tried everything. You Have know. you been in analysis? No, I, I never had. Uh, uh, I was never drawn to analysis. The I, I'd read a great deal of uh, of Freud and of uh, other uh, analysts, and the the approach never it seemed to invite me. What did invite me was the kind of um, empty self examination of. Uh, of the Zendo, of uh, Zen meditation. And that helped me ah. very, very much. Well, how, who taught you that? Where did you learn that? I bumped into a, a, a man uh, who was about my age at the time that he came to America. He's now 86. Uh, I bumped into him about 20 years ago, and I began to study with him and to drink with him. And... Uh, uh, as he said to me uh, two or three years ago, he said, uh, Leonard, I, I never tried to give you my religion. I just poured you sake. Uh, yes. And it's, it's true. A, a potent combination, I guess, the study and the sake. Huh? So, uh, <laughs> uh, I, you know, if he'd have been a professor of physics at Heidelberg, I probably would have learned German and studied at Heidelberg. You mm-hmm. know, there was something about the man that uh, touched me 
deeply. Uh, uh, I've been very fortunate to have very close men friends in different generations. So mm. the example of Leighton in relationship to his work, the diligence and the passion that he's brought to his work, uh, with this other man whose name is uh, Sasaki Roshi, uh, his um, huge embrace of the um, disparate elements, uh, you know, in in which we operate. You know, his his very wide, humorous, and compassionate embrace of all things has touched me very much. So to drink with him uh, is a, a great honor, and uh, I've been drinking with him for a long, long time now. Let's go back to. Uh the Chelsea Hotel. You spent some time in the Chelsea Hotel. That was a dangerous place. <laughs> speaking I tell of, you, uh, I don't, I don't know what it's like. <laughs> like of these drink, days, drugs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was, you know, there was a time you, you, you know, after a while, you got very wary about accepting a potato sh- chip from uh, anyone. You right. know, <laughs> you don't know what, what was going to be on usually. It. Yeah, you know? yeah. And you I went a... on a lot of involuntary trips. You know, just really the yeah. hospitality. Of uh, you know fellow uh, lodgers, Joan Baez talks about jokingly. She says that she was the only straight person at the party in it's the sixties. You know, she was the only true. one who didn't take. The and drink. I had an argument with her that was based on her uh, investment in her own straightness. <laughs> really? Yes. Well, and what was Would the nature? Like it, 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 it concerns Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, uh, whom she revered. Uh, and uh, founded a nonviolent school, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, this argument took place in the Chelsea Hotel. Uh, uh, she had um, formed this nonviolent group, and I had just finished a biography of uh, Gandhi, in which it was mentioned as a footnote, just in some, not at all making any deal out of it, you know, that he chewed Rawolfia which is a weed that grows by the side of Indian country paths and is the active ingredient in Valium or uh, uh, whatever the, the, the popular tranquilizer at the time was. It may not be Valium, right. maybe okay. a, an earlier version of but that. But a, a sedative yeah. of some sort. Yeah, yeah, a kind of tranquilizer, yeah. you know. And uh, so I, I had a suddenly a different vision of the whole, you know, nonviolent movement in India. You know, everybody's, you know, chewing Rawolfia <laughs> and sitting down and, you know, the British troops are coming at them. And they're not exactly Nazis, the British. So, you know, they, they did get beat up and pushed around and, and, and suffered terribly. But, you know, they, they didn't get put into concentration. They didn't get put into ovens, you know. But, uh, you know, so they're kind of sitting there on the road, and, and they are feeling very, very relaxed. They're relaxed way beyond a normal capacity for relaxation. So I brought this up to Joan Baez, and she was very annoyed. She was very, very annoyed that I suggested that drugs were a part of the nonviolent movement. Mm-hmm. Because she had this deep investment in 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 being the straight girl around. Well, she was, and she did it magnificently. Now, <laughs> I, she also had a certain antipathy to the mystic, the idea of mysticism, you know. And she didn't like the last line of Suzanne. She touched her perfect body with her mind. She touched her perfect, perfect body, body with her mind, right. or you touched her perfect body with your mind. And she felt that this was. 
you know, succumbing to the dark forces of religion and mysticism, which she also, you know, felt valiantly uh, to uh, defend society against, Uh. which I cherish in her, you know. So she had another line that she would sing when she sang it. I don't know what it was. You know, she touched your perfect body with her thumb. I I don't know exactly with her hand. Something a bit more natural. Yes, you know, because, you know, we know that you cannot touch things with your mind in any tangible sense and that, you know, believing that you can leads you into uh, the darkness of uh, mystical speculation, which we want to avoid at all costs. That was her position. But in the Rolling Thunder review, when she came to Montreal with Dylan and much water had gone under many bridges, you know, she sang the song. And when I uh, saw her backstage, uh, or I should say under the forum, in the catacombs of the forum uh, in Montreal, she said, I finally got it right. Uh, Very she, generous of her. Yeah, she was able to uh, to grow into it and accept it. Yeah. Back to the Chelsea Hotel. Yeah. Now, uh, another question that I've always wanted to ask you. The song, which is called Chelsea Hotel Number 2. Why number two? Is there another? Is there, there was another Chelsea. There were many Chelsea hotels, but I I was singing a different Chelsea Hotel uh, during a tour of 1972. And um, Ron Cornelius, the guitarist, San Francisco guitarist, was playing with me, and we developed a song. Uh, he gave me a chord for it. Mm-hmm. And we sang it. It was excruciatingly slow. Well, I was on Mandrax at the time. Mandrax? Yes. They used to call me Captain Mandrax. <laughs> oh, I, that's one I don't even know. What's Mandrax? I think it, 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 had, it was like a qual, qual, quaalude. Quaalude, yeah, yes. Okay. That was, I think, was the English version of it. And my 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 performances started getting slower and so on. <laughs> I was kind of in the Mahatma Gandhi stage yes, right. of my performance. You know, I was relaxed beyond uh, any reasonable uh, uh, yeah, state. So no fear of British soldiers or the audience. No, but you know, uh, <laughs> I was ready to embrace the world in, with a great sense of relaxation. Uh-huh. And I, when I list, uh, you know, there's a, a very bad movie that was made about that tour called uh, Bird on the Wire, a documentary. Uh-huh. And I think we can be seen singing Chelsea Hotel Number 1. Uh, and, you know, it takes about a half an hour oh, to sing the song. Yeah. Anyways, uh, 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 I had to rewrite the song. There were different lyrics, of course, you know. So I, I finished that. Chelsea Hotel Number Two. I finished in uh, uh, the Imperial Hotel in Asmara, Ethiopia. Rather far from the Chelsea Hotel. Yeah, yeah. But I finally got it together. You know, I finally understood. Uh, you know, and uh, so that's that's the versions of it. I, I I was very indiscreet in an interview somewhere, and I I, I let it be known that I wrote the song for Janis Joplin. I, I think it was very uh, ungentlemanly of me to let that news out, and thereafter, once it was out, I used it as an intro. I, I used her name in the introduction mm-hmm. to the song and in concerts, but I, I wish I hadn't. Yeah, th- I'm not surprised that you wish you hadn't. That uh, the song stands by itself for one thing, and for yeah. another, it's not another it's business. It, really, it's nobody's business, yeah. and uh, uh, you know, I think. 
you know, since since the cat is out of the bag, uh, you know, I'm 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 quite willing to, to talk about it. But I I, I do feel that uh, it's it's one of the few times where I feel I, you know, I did something cheap. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I attach the name of a great singer to this song in some way to promote the song. You know, that I I was indiscreet about what had happened. That these things went down. And I had no, as you say, I had no business talking about yeah. them, or at least identifying the the actors in. Can you, as long as we've brought it up, though, can you tell the the story that you sometimes tell in introducing the song about the elevator in the Chelsea Hotel? Do you mind if I don't? Oh no, okay, sure, sure. Would would it be okay if we played the song? Sure, please play it. All right. This is Leonard Cohen on uh, Idiot's Delight. I remember you well in the Chelsea Hotel. You were talking so brave and so sweet Giving me head on the unmade bed While the limousines wait in the street Those were the reasons that was New York We were running for the money and the flesh And that was called love For the workers in song Probably still is For those of them left I don't mean to suggest That I loved you the best I can't keep track Of each fallen robin I remember you well In the Chelsea Hotel That's all I don't even think of you That often That's Leonard Cohen. And this is WXRK New York, 92.3 K-Rock. It's 92.3. The cavities. Chewing Trident after those meals actually reduces plaque acids. Extra mayo, please. So when you can't brush, chew on this. Trident. And we're back here on Idiot's Delight. I'm Vince Gelsa. My guest is Leonard Cohen. There is, um, this fall, going to be published a volume of your collected works. Is that not correct? Uh, yeah, selected uh, a selection of uh, poems and songs from the past, uh, you know, twenty, thirty years. There hasn't been um, anything published. I mean, some of the some of the books are constantly reprinted, but you haven't done anything um, for print per se in quite a while. No, I think the last collection was this one in nineteen sixty eight. Then I put out a couple of books that uh, you know made no uh, impression at all. Uh, especially in this country, um, Death of a Ladies' Man mm-hmm. and uh, Book of Mercy, uh, Energy of Slaves. Is novel writing something you're still interested in? I like the regime that goes with writing of the novel. Maybe I could get back to that sometime. Uh-huh. You know, uh, I, I, I have now some kind of a romantic idea of, you know, just going to the desk. A few hours a day and, you know, living in a bright place with a good woman. <laughs> that, bright, that bright place is California these days, isn't it? Is yeah, it? I've been living there for a while now. Uh-huh. But you go back and forth between that and Montreal? Still? Yes, I, yes I, 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 about half, half and half. Uh-huh. Can you talk a little bit about um, Jennifer Warnes? Jennifer Warnes is uh, a very important figure in my life and... Uh, you know, her her voice is like the California weather. 
You know, it seems very, very sunny mm. and up. You know, but there's uh, there's an earthquake behind it. You know, there's a tidal flood. There's another element that uh, produces this. Uh, you know, I think one of the most compelling sounds in popular music. I think she's the most underrated pop singer around. I think she has the best pipes around. Mm. I think a lot of people have ripped off her style. You know, and uh, I, I just wish that she could make the kind of living that she deserves to make out of recording. That element of sun, sunshine hiding the earthquake underneath would make it seem very appropriate then for your songs. Well, you know, I chose Jennifer Warren out of, a, out of a, an audition in 1972, I was looking for backup singers, mm -hmm. you know, and she, she came in. I didn't know that she already had a career, that she'd appeared, you know, with the Smothers Brothers, that she had been a lead in hair, you know, that she even put out some of her own. I didn't know her. I, I didn't know who she was. You can see her in reruns now um, on, mm -hmm. on the, uh, what is it, the, the, the E-Network? Yeah, the Smothers yeah. Brothers are running uh, all those old episodes again in reruns now, and it's, it's odd to see her cast back in that, mm -hmm. in that light. So she auditioned for you for a backup vocal. That's right. And uh, and I chose her and went on tour. And we became very close friends uh, over the years. And, and uh, uh, you know, as my star fell, uh, um, she would always say to me, you know, I really want to do an album of your songs. And I thought this was just an expression of friendship because there was nothing in the marketplace, you know, that indicated a growing appetite for such a record and uh, we became musical friends besides personal friends and we would show each other our work and our, she's a wonderful writer also mm -hmm. of prose not just of songs this is a really a really impressive uh, uh, creative imagination you know I, I just like her take on things and uh I always, she's one of the few people that I will ever show a song in progress to, hmm. you know, because she knows exactly where the song is, and you know she, there's no she 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 doesn't exert any leverage on the song to make it go the way she wants, or you know what I mean. You can you can show her a song just as it is. There's very few people you can. I would ever think of doing that, and, and you, she does the same thing. Yeah, you can you trust know. the honesty of her feedback. Yes. Knowing that yeah. she's going to give it to you yeah. straight. Well, her instincts are yeah. impeccable yeah. in music. So she recorded famous Blue Raincoat, an album yeah. of I the mean, songs of Leonard Cohen. And she went, you know, from you know office to office of the record labels, and you know she was kind of laughed out of the place in each and every one, until she went to this new outfit called Cypress Records, and they gave her some money to do it, and and actually the record did very well, and actually it, the record was very much responsible for a kind of new take on you know what I was about. Well, that record, and then uh, a couple of years later, the uh, the I'm Your Fan album, mm -hmm. where yeah, where a, awesome. a bunch of uh, musicians, both uh, in in Europe and uh, here in the states, got together and recorded their versions of of your songs, taking its title from I'm, I'm Your Man, a yeah. takeoff on that. That also helped to uh, introduce nice. you yeah. to a whole new audience yeah. that hadn't known you before. I'm torn here between wanting to play um, famous her version of Famous Blue Raincoat. Or a song on her most recent album that you are a co-writer of called Way Down Deep. And I think I'm, I'm going to opt for Way Down Deep, if sure, that's okay on, with you. With Can you yeah. talk about this? Because this is the only version of the song at this point, right? 
Uh, you yeah. haven't you have yeah. not recorded this song. I have an entirely different version. Really? Of the song which I tried to prepare for this new record but I just couldn't finish it in time. You co-wrote the song with Jennifer and with uh, someone named Amy La Television? Well, now Amy La Television wrote the song, wrote a song called Way Down Deep uh-huh. and it had a hook, Way Down Deep. And I thought it was a wonderful hook. And Jennifer phoned me and said, you know, would you work on this song? And, uh, you know, I don't lightly commit myself to that because that's a long, long period. We we know what that means for you. (laughs) (laughs) This could be years. (laughs) So uh, uh, I said, count me out. You know, know, I mean, let me off the hook on this one, Jennifer, because, you know, I'm in the middle of trying to write the future. And I I can't get into this song. What an odd statement that is. I'm in the middle of trying to write the future. (laughs) (laughs) The poet is God. (laughs) (laughs) I meant the record. Yes, and, I uh, know. <laughs> and, uh, uh, anyways, she said it's it's going to be the most important song on the album. I'm going to begin with it. This was original conception. I'm going to uh-huh. begin with it and end with it. And there's going to be it's going to unfold and it's you know going to examine you know everything from you know the creation of the world to the women's movement and we're going to have everything in this song called Way Down Deep. So I started writing writing verses to it. Uh, I, I heard Amy's version, and, and I couldn't quite penetrate it, except for the for the hook. So I started writing it, and it went through a lot of changes, and uh, Jennifer was using some of my verses. And, and curiously enough, some of Amy's verses started to make sense to Jennifer, and she started using them as a kind of, I don't know, kind of obligato in the back uh, against some of the verses I'd written. But anyways, the thing became completely... Uh, Jennifer's song and uh, I think that Jorge I'm not sure no who's playing bass on that uh, is it Roscoe or Jorge Calderon the print is too small for me uh, to find it right now we'll find it and, uh, and when we're done playing it we'll say who it is I know that Jorge Calderon played bass on her version of, of Bird on the Wire and he's, he's yes it is he's it in is, my band it is Jorge Calderon Yes, so he, 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 he is playing the bass. He's with me now. David Mansfield on mm-hmm. uh, steel guitar and mm-hmm. the fiddle on the track. Has Mansfield, have you ever played with Mansfield? No, I haven't. He's one of, the, one of the great wonders of the violin. But you usually have a violinist in, in your yes. bands, don't you? Uh, I, I have a wonderful violinist by the name of Bobby Fergo uh-huh. playing with me. Let's listen to this Jennifer Warren's track called Way Down Deep, a song co-written by Leonard Cohen. Say again what you just said. 
Jennifer came up yeah. with that part. Yes. You know, I knew we nailed the song. The do dum dum part. Yeah, yeah oh, that's yes. perfect. Oh, really yes. That was such a. I mean, that's such a. That really brought the song and gave it the perspective of real humor. Uh -huh. Sure. Sure. Of real life. Uh, but there was needed. enough. There was enough humor in it to yeah, start out with. Laps. You know, I ache in the places where right. I used to play, and yeah. I was born with this uh, golden voice. Right. I mean, for people who say that uh, that there is no sense of humor in Leonard Cohen's work, there's a perfect example of its existence. That from the uh, the I'm Your Man album, Tower of Song. Does that tower exist any place? You think? A lot of a lot of people I know are in it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Hank Williams is up very high in the okay, tower. Yeah, yeah. different floor. Yeah. This is WXRK New York. It's 92.3 K-Rock. Leonard Cohen will be in town tomorrow night performing with uh, a big band, right? A lot of a lot of pieces in the Well, band. We're, we're nine on stage. Yeah, that's know, a big group. There's two, two singers and uh, you know, six musicians. And he'll be over at the Paramount, which is over at... Uh, at the garden, right next door there to the garden. Uh, early, early performance tomorrow. It's seven thirty. Really? Seven thirty. So I don't know. I was going to ask you that, but that's the start time. Seven thirty. Oh, I think it might have something to do with unions and union costs. I don't know. Uh, uh, and overtimes. Uh, I, I noticed that uh, we're dealing a lot with that, with those uh, uh, limitations. Right. Let's pause here for a second and uh, listen to some commercial words here on Idiots Delay. To help introduce new sugar-free surgery. It starts at 8 o'clock Wednesday night at Reesway Park near Englishtown, New Jersey. Leonard Cohen, has your method of um, composing, writing, changed over the years with the changes in technology? Have you embraced computers and that whole... I, I love computers, and uh, most of my last album was written uh, with the Mac Performer program. Uh, and... Um, which I, you know, played into the Mac from my keyboard and then changed in the Mac and then replayed and then dumped onto a 24-track. Mm -hmm. So those, for those of us who uh, don't know, that oh, you, have a, you have a keyboard, yeah. like a piano keyboard in front That's of right. you, right? That's right, yes. I have a keyboard that, is, uh, uh, that has um, a, an output that enables it to, uh, to transmit signals to a computer, which then uh, uh, enables you to change those signals in the computer and then replay them out through the keyboard so that you get you can there are endless variations uh -huh. and changes uh -huh. that you can make on it so you can write the arrangements as well yes most of the arrangements were done uh, that way on this new record now why does it why does it seem to me that leonard cohen and computer technology shouldn't go hand in hand i don't know i there was something about the computer as soon as i was given one i felt the same way uh -huh. and uh, macintosh had some kind of uh, uh, promotional program in canada and they gave a computer to f to a half a dozen writers mm -hmm. you know and uh, i said look this is uh, just a waste of money chaps you know <laughs> and i said can you send someone up you know now, prior to this, when you'd write, would you write in longhand or typewriter? Yeah, yeah, typewriter. I always liked typewriters, but I, you know, wrote, wrote everything, laundry lists, and and you'd compose with a guitar. Yeah, right. that's okay. right. Yeah, very rarely the keyboard, mm -hmm. but sometimes, but usually guitar. But when they showed me how to work this thing, and uh, I also began drawing on it, you know, with eventually with a freestanding stylus that works on a digitalized tablet. And you can you can by pressure on the stylus you can uh, widen or narrow the line itself so you can kind of brush paint. Uh -huh. There are many kinds of programs now available that are much more sophisticated than the ones I use. 
but uh, I loved it. It seemed magic to me. And, uh, you know, while I could never really repair toasters or cars, I have a feeling for the, for the computer. Is there, a kind of, uh, is there a kind of a relationship to poetry in the computer, do you think? Or is that, am I going too far? With I it? don't they're, know. Yeah. I, I, you know I, mean, I guess there are... There's com- a mystery you know, about the, them. Well, there are computer mystics. Uh-huh. Uh, around, uh, I, I think that the you know the philosophy and theory of the computer it, that's a little too deep for me. All I know is that they, you know, I can do things with them. They seem like they seem like very friendly uh-huh. yeah. devices, and uh, I can, you know, first of all, you can change the typography on a, on a lyric, and that often changes the way you're looking at it. You know, you can you can you can put the whole thing out in like. Um, uh, old English type, you know. So you have a very uh, like a modern line, like "Give it to me, baby." When you see that written in Gothic, uh-huh. you know, type, it has a different meaning, and you can move things around that way, and it refreshes the mind, and it um, it invites you to think uh, about things uh, different ways. It's a it's a very friendly kind of activity. Do you work every day? Do you write yeah. every day? And do you have a do. do you have a set uh, ritual? Do you have a, a discipline well, that you you know the record to? starts and fits and starts and uh, you know you, you you first of all gather the songs that didn't make it onto the previous record because I'm always operating from a position of poverty. It's not like I have thousands of songs like Prince, you know, to choose between. You know, there's only a few things going, so you take the ones that didn't make it onto the last record and you start messing around with them. Mm-hmm. And then you know you're you're documenting your life, and uh, you know the whole dismal thing starts to unfold. <laughs> and as you approach, you know the later stages of the thing. Well, it's not you're in it all the time. So you know, I've developed a kind of very pleasant life based around this obsessive activity. Between albums, will you remove yourself from that activity? Will you just well between put albums? I have the tour. Mm-hmm. See, I tour every four years because that's usually what it takes to put the album out. So I go on this tour that is a completely different, completely cha- changed kind of activity. You know, I'm singing and dancing and you know talking to people. And, and the other the other parts of the time are very are really quite solitary. Yeah, yeah. Is that is that aspect of touring um, the solitary aspect of it um, generate its own kind of creativity? Well, I or not. I don't know. I, I I've never been really able to write on the road, but I you know it's so great to get out of your room. Uh-huh. You know, it's so great to be able to talk to people. Of course, the touring has its own. You know, you're tired a lot of the time, and uh, you know, as I say, the you know the possibilities of disgrace are abundant, <laughs> and uh, you know there there are many obvious things about touring that are dangerous and fatiguing. But it's really great to get out of your house and to and to get behind the songs and to, you know, gamble every night that you're going to you know have the the purity of spirit or the enthusiasm or the or the care, and you're going to be able to summon your best self and present the songs. Mm. It's something that I've always uh, wondered about with with performers, with actors, for instance, who do the same play every night, um, how they how they can summon that um, that freshness. Um, if you sing the same song every night with the same group of musicians night after night mm-hmm. after night, doesn't it become rote after a while? Doesn't it become... I've never like, found it to, yeah. to, to be that, you know. I, I guess the thing is so risky 
uh, moment by moment that y you know uh, certainly with the kind of the kind of show that we do uh, you know there's there's not too many guarantees if anybody plays a wrong note it's going to blow the song in some kind of way i mm -hmm. mean it's very precise and uh, it's a, we it's it's really quite uh, yeah i mean we we're all worried about blowing it it isn't really just like strolling in, you know, this wandering troubadour and, you know, playing a few chords. The songs are very carefully arranged mm -hmm. and, and carefully presented. Also, you know, the red wine helps. I tend to drink a bit of red wine. While you're performing? Or no, be before? Not, not while. I, I only drink professionally. I, I, I have, a, <laughs> I have a, a few drinks, a few glasses, uh -huh. uh, sometimes many glasses with uh, a meal that we take in common all of us the technicians the crew right, okay. and the musicians we generally eat together and and some of us will drink together and um this also i i i would you know i must pay my debt you know publicly to the red wine <laughs> it's it's a wonderful thing but i only drink professionally i never drink after intermission and I try to uh, invite the people I work with not to drink after intermission also. I think it's a sacramental uh, uh, activity. Uh -huh. You know, we drink together and we play and the wine speaks, you know, with the song. And then if you start drinking after the concert, you know, then, you, then you're really going to get into trouble. Yeah, you get sloppy. Yeah. yeah. Now, in addition to uh, uh, performing, uh, as Leonard will be doing at the Paramount Monday night, tomorrow night at 7.30, and recording his songs, uh, as he has for so many years now, since 1967, I guess, the Definitely first album. That, yeah. um, the most recent album being, of course, The Future. Um, Leonard will be publishing a, a book of his poetry and lyrics this fall. The book will be called Stranger Music. Nice hardcover edition from the folks over at Knopf. Yeah. Would you um, perhaps um, grace us with a, a reading of a of a new a new work? Well, here's a very slight piece okay. called Paris Models. The models were changing for the next shot. I saw the sex of one and the breast of another. A balloon was taped to a woman's finger, and they started up the wind machine. The dresses came alive, and glorious accidents of hair and shadow framed their solemn faces. The miracle of the balloon grazing on a fingertip while the storm carried off their bodies was deeply convincing. Finally, the Chinese food arrived, and the models walked around wearing towels and carrying paper plates. Everyone was happy that the magic of womanhood had worked again. They could rest a little while on the great wave at the very crest of confident and effortless allure. I was happy, too. I felt privileged to have attended a ceremony usually restricted to professionals.
so in a sense, Leonard, that song kind of brings you back to those those first musical performances of yours when you were playing country music yeah, in, in Montreal. I mean, here that's that's the full circle. Yeah, yeah. Setting a, a, a the apocalypse or something like it in a country and western bar. So, you know, I was in this uh, little town in Ontario. I think it was Kitchener. We were playing a concert there, and I got a note from someone in the audience, and it was it was Mike Dobbin's brother, my my buddy in the in the Buckskin Boys, and he sent me a note saying that Mike had died, you know, and I'd lost contact with these boys, and uh, he came backstage. They were from my street, you know, uh-huh. we grew up together, and he showed me a picture of Mike Dobbin, who was the harmonica player of the Buckskin Boys, and he'd become a Trappist monk in his last years, and I, ha- I now have a picture of him celebrating the Mass. Huh. Anyways, let's not get dismal, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it was. It's back to the Buckskin right. Boys. Let's remind everybody that Leonard Cohen will be performing at the Paramount tomorrow night, Monday night, at 7.30. The Paramount, of course, uh, the old felt forum over at uh, Madison Square Garden. This has been a delight having you here this evening. I appreciate the invitation. Um, and I hope Maybe we... five years we can do it again okay, if every, I have a new record. Every five years, let's do it. Even if you don't have a, a, a record, all right? Please uh, consider the microphone's always open to you here on I Idiot's Delight. That. Tell me about Waiting for the Miracle. What is, what is the miracle for you? The miracle is the, to, to uh, move to the other side of the miracle where you cop to the fact that you're waiting for it and that uh, it may or may not come, but uh, uh, free from waiting, free from the miracle. Uh-huh. So let's do something crazy, something absolutely wrong while we're waiting for the miracle to come. Once you have embraced this notion that you're waiting for the miracle, that this thing is not going to work out, that there is a crack in everything, that this landscape is treacherous, and we don't get what we want, you know, but we must wait, but to... The, go to the other side of waiting, where you're free from waiting, and you're fr- and that gives you this madness. Baby, let's get married. We've been along, alone too long. Mm. Let's be alone together. Let's see if we're that strong. This is, this is very much uh, akin to the Zen philosophy that you were talking about before. I don't. I never figured out what the Zen philosophy was because you know uh, this uh, teacher of mine couldn't speak English. Oh wait, wait a minute! You didn't mention that before, Leonard. How did no, so? Never, it was just never, the sake that you used to communicate. He never, mostly. Well, it was actually <laughs> it was uh, it was cognac. Uh, he taught me to be able to distinguish by taste between the different kinds of cognac, like the different taste of Courvoisier as opposed to Remy Martin. You know, where he would say like, "Yeah, oh, Remy Martin, a slightly feminine taste." You know. Courvoisier has slightly masculine taste. Uh-huh. Well, uh-huh. after you've drunk a bottle or so, you know these uh, possibilities uh, become very rich. I see. So I don't really know. So, what the, so that, waiting what for the miracle been, is not necessarily a Zen sort of. Even when he's things. got a translator, nobody can quite figure out what he's what he's saying. <laughs> I thank you for being my guest on Idiot's Delight today. Thank you for inviting me, Leonard Cohen. You're a very special man. Thank you. Take care.
believe that you heard your master sing I'm sure that he told you everything I must keep locked away in my head Your master took you traveling Well, at least that's what you said And now do you come back to bring your prisoner So there you have uh, real early music from Leonard Cohen and something from the most recent album as well, Master Song, appears on the very first Leonard Cohen album, the album that was called Songs of Leonard Cohen. And Waiting for the Miracle is part of the future. What a nice man. What a gentle and generous man. So now I should kick myself for all these years right, that I that I avoided having him on the show because of intimidation or fear that he wouldn't be a gentle, generous man. But sometimes you just have to go with something when the time is right, you know, when the time was right tonight to finally make a connection with Leonard Cohen. Listening to Master Song, I immediately, immediately flash back to two rooms. The first room I mentioned when I was talking to him, this is WXRK New York, by the way, 92.3 K-Rock, it's Idiot's Delight. The first room was my, my, my attic room that I lived in in my parents' house. And the second room was a basement room, so it's interesting that I went from my parents, I went from my parents' attic room to a basement room in a house that was owned by a a, a teacher at the at the college that I went to, and he rented out his basement room, and that was sort of like that was the room. It wasn't the first time I left home, but it was the it was the time when I left home and it stuck. You know, I didn't go back after moving into that basement room. And the, and a good percentage of the time, the soundtrack in those two rooms was being supplied by that first Leonard Cohen album. That song called Songs of Leonard Cohen, songs like Master Song and uh, and uh, So Long Marianne and Suzanne and Sisters of Mercy and Teacher and Hey, That's No Way to Say Goodbye. So I've been uh, part of I've been part of this uh, uh, communal connection to 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 this man this poet for um, a whole lot of years and uh i'm 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 real pleased with the way it went tonight i hope you guys enjoyed it as well when i do something like that i, I sort of feel like uh i sort of feel the way i do it when when we do those shows down at the bottom line that i'm like like the representative of the audience and i'm sitting in for you and i'm i'm uh asking the questions and and um conveying the uh compliments that I feel a lot of you would want to convey if you had the opportunity. So I'm sort of blessed to have this job. I was mentioning this the other night at uh, the screening that we had of Orlando. By the way, have you read the reviews for Orlando, this Sally Potter film that we had a special Idiot's Delight screening of a couple of nights ago? It's gotten wonderful reviews. I mean, it's it's uh, um, living up to all of the uh, all of the feelings that I expressed about it. And uh, we had a very successful screening of it. But I mentioned in introducing the film that I have uh, a real neat job because I am a a sort of a cultural sharer. I love to find things and then grab people by by the lapels of their coats or their tails of their jackets or whatever and say, hey, listen to this. Sit down and listen to this. Read this. Go see that. You know, I love doing that. And, um... 
I have that opportunity on the radio every Sunday night to do that, to, to grab all of those metaphorical lapels and coattails out there and say, listen to this, check this out, read this, go see that movie. Leonard Cohen's here. Hey, let's, you know, share Leonard Cohen with me. Go see him tomorrow night at the Paramount. He's uh, wonderful in, in performance. So there you have it. That was my interview uh, once again with Leonard Cohen from June of 1993, um, recorded on Idiot's Light when it was on WXRK New York, 92.3 K-Rock was uh, what that station was called. And I was doing a long, long Sunday night show that would it be for at least six hours. Sometimes it would be even longer than that was the bane of producer Cara Manning's existence. <laughs> so next time when we do our next podcast, I think we'll we'll wrap up my sojourn at WPLJ. Okay? Great. Okay, good. Thank you, Kay. Thank you. Bye.